0: You're listening to the Garrett Ashley Mullet Show on Anchor FM. I'm Garrett Ashley Mullet, and I want to talk about everything. Welcome back to the Garrett Ashley Mullet Show. This is, of course, Garrett Ashley Mullet coming to you from Greeley, Colorado for episode 477 of this podcast. Today is Monday, October 3rd, 2022. And today we're going to be talking about five books I read over the weekend, plus also a upcoming job change. But first of all, let me just apologize for not having recorded much in the way of podcasts. The past week. Maybe it was a factor of exhaustion with everything else going on, trying to orchestrate my mother's rescue from Florida. She lives in Fort Myers and she was right in the thick of everything last Wednesday. And so that made for a very full latter part of the week, especially starting my hitch as a systems integrator for Chevron with my mom needing to be kept in contact with, also trying to arrange things with my brother since he was in Ohio or on his way to Ohio on Thursday to see his wife's father, who has been not doing well health-wise. We finally got things fairly well straightened out yesterday and the day before, and my brother should be arriving today or this evening to help our mother get things loaded up that can be salvaged. Her main floor, first story condominium unit was flooded and everything got soaked. So a lot will have to be thrown away. Insurance will have to cover the loss. But some of it can be tossed into, gently placed into a U-Haul and brought here to Colorado where she will stay for a few weeks, perhaps while things get straightened out. But again, as I say, Maybe it was a factor of exhaustion with everything going on as far as that goes. Also, with regards to a forthcoming job change, which I'll tell you about at the end of this episode, but I have only recorded one podcast episode since last Wednesday when I found out my mother was in the midst of Hurricane Ian. I didn't know until it was making landfall, and I had just recorded an episode that morning, but I haven't had much of a notion to podcast more since then. So what have I been doing instead? For starters, I listened to five audiobooks over the weekend. And now that I'm feeling a little more rested and settled with my brother on his way to Florida, I'd like to get back into podcasting. Thank you. Yes, I listened to five audiobooks over the weekend, and you might think, boy, weren't you tired? I thought you just said you were tired. Why would you listen to five audiobooks? Well, there's different muscles mentally that are exercised in reading a book versus recording a podcast episode. There's no two ways about it. So it actually was very restful, and the more I was listening, the less I felt like I needed to talk, the more it took my mind off of some other things, but... It's not tiring in the same way, and I think we all know that. It's not tiring in the same way to listen to an audiobook as it is, perhaps, to have conversation or record a podcast episode, as the case may be. So what did I listen to, you might be wondering? And also, what did I make of what I heard? Well, let me, first of all, give you the list. To start it off, I listened to a very short work by Carlo M. Gipolla, titled The Basic Laws of Human Stupidity, and I will tell you about each of these in turn once I have given you the list. But next, I listened to Beauty, a very short introduction by Roger Scruton. After that, I listened to The Smallest Minority, Independent Thinking in the Age of Mob Politics by Kevin D. Williamson. After that, I listened to Science and Technology, which is available on Audible, but it's not so much a book as it is a collection of interviews, which I suppose if they were written down, you could read them as a book. But Neil Postman caught my attention. He was the main one I was interested in hearing the interview of. So I listened to that one. Lastly, A Journey to the Western Islands of Scotland by Samuel Johnson and James Boswell. So those were the five titles I was able to Start and finish, both, over the weekend. And let's just start from the top. We'll tackle these in chronological order. The Basic Laws of Human Stupidity by Carlo M. Cipolla. Born in Pavia, Italy in 1922, so one century ago, 100 years ago. He passed away in the year 2000. But before that, he was a noted professor of economic history at UC Berkeley I found his work here, The Basic Laws of Human Stupidity, published in 1988, two years after I was born, to be mean, unfunny, and condescending. I thought, on the front end, I was led to believe on the front end that this was supposed to be humorous, but it reminded me too much of the book Nudge and also The Undoing Project, not so much that I objected to The Undoing Project as a book, but this whole business of behavioral economics is troubling, in particular where I perceive a license that those who think themselves very smart and think everyone else very dumb have granted to themselves by writing at length and very academically about how stupid everyone else is, and if you can believe it, how smart they must be that they've figured out how stupid everyone else is. So I think this, even though it's supposed to be a bit of satire or humor, I, for one, didn't find it very humorous, but for another thing, uh, I think you could call it a cousin to those other works. This guy is a economic historian, whereas the authors of the researches pertaining to Nudge and The Undoing Project, Kahneman and Tversky, also Thaler and Sunstein, they are more in the realm of behavioral economists, theoretical and practical. This would seem to be maybe a more honest and candid expression of what it is that they're saying. I think they've dressed it up. I think that Kahneman and Tversky, in their work, uh, weren't necessarily setting out to prove that everybody else was so stupid, but maybe. Maybe they were, and they found what they were looking for. Thaler and Sunstein, I think, really do just believe that everybody else is too dumb to know what's best for them. I think that's what it is. If something can be said positively about Carlo M. Capola's book, it is that he at least is wearing his contempt on his sleeve, out in the open, honestly, and that's commendable I suppose. But this is a very short book. I don't know that that's a redeeming quality so much as a mercy, but I did not like it. It got on my nerves, if you can't tell. And uh, I think the reason for that is that the (laughs) fact that there are so many stupid people in the world, so-called, depending on how you define it, uh, that's too obvious, right? And I don't like even thinking of it in those terms. Yes, there are people who make bad choices. There are people who are corrupt, but that's everybody. That's everybody working off of incomplete information and then also having to contend with a sinful nature. I don't think stupid is the best word to use. If you believe people are inherently good and they have a good nature, what they lack is information. What they lack is knowledge. What they lack is being educated well then, I suppose you might think there's two kinds of people in the world, smart people and stupid people. But that's not the way I that's not the way I look at it. I don't think that people are inherently good. I think sometimes what you have is people who are corrupt, who are very very clever about it. And other times you've got people who are corrupt that are not very sophisticated in their corruption. And then other times you have people who are just finite. They're just finite creatures. And whether you're talking about any one of those three categories of people, I don't think calling them stupid is the most accurate description. And I'm not trying to split hairs here, but I don't think stupid is the best word for it because what's wrong is not stupidity. It might be ignorance, but that's not the same thing as stupidity. That that might be close. If you're being ignorant on purpose, you're intentionally trying to ignore things and that is folly, because those things still exist, and especially when they're relevant to the decisions you should be making, they shouldn't be ignored, they should be factored in. I wouldn't say that's a factor of smart and stupid. I, I would say that's a factor of wise and foolish. But even when we're talking about people intentionally knowing and doing anyways what they want to do, I just I, I don't think that this book is helpful in any way, shape, or form. But I can see where some people, a certain kind of people who think themselves very wise, think themselves very smart, might really enjoy this book. I just am not one of those people who enjoys this. I don't. I I run across so much of uh, this kind of attitude or people who are burnt out on this kind of attitude. I just couldn't enjoy it. So there you go. (laughs) That's what I think of the basic laws of human stupidity. In a nutshell, moving on for a much happier book, Roger Scruton's Beauty, a very short introduction published in 2009. This work by Scruton, esteemed British conservative political philosopher, is indeed very philosophical and much more contemporary. As an aside, anecdotally, according to Larry Elder The recent candidate for governor of the state of California, I think he would have made a great one. Longtime talk radio host there in Los Angeles, if I'm not mistaken. Mentor for Candace Owens. According to Larry Elder, the incoming prime minister of Italy is a disciple of Roger Scruton. Also, my friend Bobby McPherson moved his family to the UK for a year to study under Scruton before Scruton passed away. So I feel a certain connection, just even from Bobby, to this work, Beauty, a very short introduction, not least because I first learned about Scruton in the first place from my friend Bobby McPherson. Also very exciting to think that Italy, not just having elected its first female prime minister, elected, surprisingly enough, someone who has sat at the feet of Roger Scruton. Now, in this work specifically, Scruton references Burke's earlier work, Edmund Burke's work, A Philosophical Inquiry into the Nature of the Sublime and the Beautiful. And I have also read that. I've also reviewed that. You can go back and check out my book review for that work. Very much enjoyed it. And actually, admittedly, uh, I liked it better than this one as much or more because it's older. So this treatment by Scruton, it's rather high minded, very British. Of course, Edmund Burke's was very British as well, both very intellectual, but this one felt more academic in a way that I think is less forgivable for it having been written in 2009 instead of 1757, which is when Edmund Burke's work on aesthetics, groundbreaking work on aesthetics, was written. Scruton's beauty is elegantly told, to be sure. And no less did I appreciate that fact (laughs) because I had just read right before reading this work, Carlo M. Coppola's The Basic Laws of Human Stupidity. Beauty by Roger Scruton is a breath of fresh air in terms of talking about something that is good and true in a certain sense, but also distinct from what's good and what's true. Now, But this, this work, it's not as graceful as Burke's work. Just to reiterate, both are in and of themselves elegant after a fashion, but this is not quite as graceful as Burke. It feels rather more modern, which is to be expected. But what I mean by that is, It's not just the style of writing. I also mean this work, given what year it was written in and published in and what has happened since 1757 had to deal with what the attitudes are today uh, with regards to beauty and aesthetics, a great deal more than Burke's could have except in a hypothetical thinking forward sort of a way, which he didn't really do. He was just looking at it objectively And not really dealing quite so much with how are these attitudes going to evolve into something that we recognize today. This feels a bit like a mess because modernity is a mess with regards to aesthetics and the rejection of truth. And again, beauty is something distinct philosophically from truth, but it's related in the way that universal things must be related. It is related to goodness, but it's distinct from goodness. And in the modern age, there is a rejection of all of these things, which are objective, which are universal, because there's a rejection of God. We reject God and we reject His having authority over creation. And the way that we do an end run around his having authority over creation is by denying that he created it. If we say, ah, there is no such thing as beauty. There is no such thing as truth. There is no such thing as goodness objectively. And yet we still use those categories in a subjective way. Well, then we can liberate ourselves entirely or so we think. And yet The counter move is to insist stubbornly, no, there is such a thing as truth. There is such a thing as goodness. There is such a thing as beauty. Because God, in the beginning, created the heavens and the earth. Because the earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. Because the heavens declare the glory of God, the psalmist writes in Psalm 19.1. So, on the one hand... You have those who believe that, and they see that, and they don't deny it. They don't try to suppress it. And on the other hand, you have those who are trying to suppress it in every way they possibly can. And then you get Scruton, who does not seem to be an overly religious person, but like a number of intellectuals in recent years, seems unable to escape the fact of God's existence, the importance of our belief in God to civilization, to human flourishing, to the sustenance of the idea of Western civilization, begrudgingly, perhaps stubbornly, resistantly, but nevertheless. So Scruton was certainly not a theologian, and yet, for instance, to give you an example, he objects strenuously to pornography, with surprising principle and force, even he, even as he marks most art today being a sneer at the whole notion of beauty rather than highlighting of beauty or celebrating beauty. He differentiates between, on the one hand, erotic art having to do with eros or love, and on the other hand, pornography, where the question of appreciating beauty and the life of the person is concerned on the one hand. And on the other hand, the mechanical use and even abuse of other people is the whole point. So it's an interesting work. It's definitely worth reading. I would not say it was the best book I read over the weekend, but I would say it was very good. And it does pair nicely with what Burke had to say. Although I like what Burke had to say better and I think you should read it first or only what Burke had to say if you're only going to read one or the other. But for my part, reading what Burke had to say on it made me want to read what others have to say about it, especially Scruton for the personal connections and what's going on in our day and in recent decades, in large part thanks to his influence, the force of his arguments. But. The next book I read after reading Scruton's Beauty, a very short introduction, was a work by Kevin D. Williamson titled The Smallest Minority Independent Thinking in the Age of Mob Politics, and the cover art for this one is just great. It's a blue background, like Twitter bird blue, with red Twitter birds flying, carrying bombs. Like they're going to drop bombs. That's what Twitter really is. That's the kind of message baked into the cover art. So I was very interested, even just from the cover art, and I was unfamiliar with Kevin D. Williamson. Apparently he's a big deal. Just ask him. But I didn't like his work. I did not like the book. I liked the premise of the book. I didn't like the book itself quite so much. And I'll explain what I mean. Williamson here is writing about mean and ugly things, and that needs to happen. That needs to be done. We need to be talking about these mean, ugly things. But Williamson writes about these mean and ugly things in a mean and ugly way. And that I fail to see much use in. He reminds me of Tom Wolfe in Radical Chic and Mau Mauing the Flat Catchers. Great books, by the way. Only Tom Wolfe is more pleasant. And his work is more pleasant. (laughs) Williamson is not as good a writer as Tom Wolfe is by a long shot. But I think he wants to be Tom Wolfe. And he references. Of course, he knows who Tom Wolfe is. Of course, he is self-conscious about this. And he references Tom Wolfe's work in something like how Scruton references Burke. And maybe in the decades or centuries to come, our descendants, should the world stand, should we have descendants, we'll look back on all of the above and like Tom Wolfe and Kevin D. Williamson about as much as we would uh, say, or I would say, certainly, I like Roger Scruton and Edmund Burke. I like Tom Wolfe's book better than Williamson's work, although it is dated, and I like Burke's work better than I like Scruton's work although it is a bit even more dated. Kevin D. Williamson is a good writer who knows it too well. And I think one of the most annoying features of this book, not least because he is a good writer, he is a decent writer, this book, published in 2019, constantly takes these pandering pot shots at former President Donald Trump and his supporters, and maybe... Williamson comes by it honestly if he's a never-Trumper. He's committed, and he's not the only one. But there are never-Trumpers I actually like in a way that I can't bring myself to like Kevin D. Williamson, at least not from this book. Maybe if I had been acquainted with his work prior to the candidacy and then presidency and then post-administration Donald Trump, maybe if I had been familiar with Kevin D. Williamson's work before, I would like him better now. But Jonah Goldberg comes to mind as somebody who I had read prior to Trump running, and then Jonah Goldberg turns out to be a never Trumper, and that's unfortunate. But once he had <laughs> once he had set his sights on being a never Trumper, it was like he couldn't but stick to his guns, and I think that's unfortunate. I think that is uh, all too human of him, and yet liberal fascism, his book, liberal fascism was very much a political awakening for me. I take what Kevin D. Williamson is doing here though, as maybe less principled. I think, I think Jonah Goldberg is being more principled. I feel like Kevin D. Williamson is pandering to a constituency of his readers and his potential audience. He wrote briefly for the Atlantic and then he got canceled and he tells you about it at length here again and again keeps bringing it up it's obviously a sore spot but then also it's relevant to the subject matter but he seems like a kind of hatchet man and this seems like hatchet man literature in some sense where trump is concerned it feels out of place i don't quite understand why he needs to keep bringing up trump and his supporters with regards to the state of online discourse yes trump tweeting me (laughs) <laughs> mean things. Um I guess I guess that's relevant, but Williamson feels a bit like he's missing the forest for the trees. At least 3 years ago, maybe he would write this differently today. I doubt it. Just the vibe I get from him is that he would not admit he was wrong if it turned out that he was wrong. He wouldn't be able to see it. But I think this hatchet man type literature has become too typical. The past five to ten years or so. But Williamson in particular, writing as a conservative, I guess, at least somebody who works for the National Review, he comes across as a snobbish, elitist, pseudo-conservative. And this work of his comes across as pseudo-intellectual fair for the most part, because it does feel like it's pandering. It doesn't feel quite as honest and genuine as he's trying to make it feel He's more pain than Burke to some extent. He's undignified. He's coarse. He's vulgar. He's brutish and he's unperturbed by his own ugliness. And he draws a vivid word picture that Twitter is like monkeys at the zoo amusing themselves and flinging poo at visitors all day, doing other things besides, which I won't repeat, but that's his analogy, that's his metaphor for Twitter just because Williamson can turn a phrase like that, that doesn't mean he's any better than the poo-flinging monkeys at the zoo or the Twitter mob. Uh, He does write some cogent, if jarring observations here and there. For instance, the bit about cancel culture being more about group identity on the basis of violating and destroying another person. Uh, That I think is apt. I think that's helpful and more of that would be good. His comparing... Cancel culture, trying to systematically go after people in recent years for old tweets, old things that they said years and years ago, or taken out of context, sound really bad with a new orthodoxy. His comparison of cancel culture going after people as soon as they rise to a position of prominence, trying to destroy their careers, trying to dig up something about them. He compares it to gang rape in the most extreme example. And construction workers catcalling some beautiful woman walking down the street. None of those construction workers expect that they are going to get that gal's number or a response at all. Unless she flicks her hair as she's walking by and keeps on going. She's not going to stop and chat with them though. They're catcalling in some measure to destroy what they can't have. And yes, there is a certain element of group cohesion, a gang initiation that is happening when people's lives are being destroyed online. That's accurate. But the final word on Kevin D. Williamson, at least from reading this book to my way of thinking, is that he reminds me too much of the atheist kid in high school who tries to mock and argue everyone into renouncing Christianity. The fact that said kid is intelligent reasonably well spoken and aggressive even doggedly confident and determined it would be admirable if he weren't so wicked and godless and mean to his targets and spectators but there you have it he is and so you can't quite compliment him like you might otherwise it would be irresponsible so I won't Moving on, science and technology is a title I picked up. Actually, several of these are titles I picked up during the recent Audible sale. Science and technology was short, but it was engaging. And this here is a collection of interviews with Neil Postman, Jane Metcalf, Howard Rheingold, Mark Sloka, Andrew Kimbrell, Doug Gruthius, Dean Kenyon, Philip Johnson, and Michael Behe. It's a bit dated, Copyright 1997 by Mars Hill Audio, but this is a collection of interviews that might be more helpful for being a bit dated. I think this is a discussion of the ramifications of some things that were closer to their outset when these interviews were conducted, and they're in fuller swing today, 25 years later. So for example, there's talk in this work about fetal tissue harvesting from live infants and how that was greenlit by former President Bill Clinton without concern for the ethical dilemmas inherent to the process of harvesting tissues from fetuses. I think that being brought up in these interviews is a jarring reminder of how long this has been going on. In the late 90s, I wasn't paying attention to these things. Not really. I was born in 86, 1997. I was all of 11 years old. I wasn't paying attention to these things. But lest we suppose, more recent work by pro-life groups and Project Veritas going undercover, lest we suppose that should be news to us or their revelations in the past couple of years. mean, this barbarous racket just started. These interviews make clear that's not the case. This has been going on for 25 years or more at this point. So the question is asked, what have we come to when older people are cannibalizing the living bodies of infants to prolong their own lives? Because that's what's being done with the harvesting of fetal tissue. It's not the fetuses who are harvesting one another's tissue to conduct medical research. It's, Older adults who know better and have capability, who are harvesting the organs and the tissue of living infants to try and prolong their own lives and the lives of one another to make money. This work also explores the ramifications of instantaneous communication. Of course, anything to do with Neil Postman would have to, but that doesn't mean it feels tired or redundant If you've read Amusing Ourselves to Death, you can hear him in this, in his own voice, talking in a bit more of a conversational way. That's very interesting to me. Amusing Ourselves to Death is another great work to pick up and check out. Do yourself a favor. But as he asks, when up until the past century, the rate at which messages could travel was about 35 miles an hour at most, how much of our psychological and social finitude is affected in ways that we haven't even really considered by information now being transmittable and receivable at the speed of light. He was asking that question decades ago and who was answering, who was listening. I think it's time to listen. I think it's time to rewind, consider also to scientism is called out as the new religion. That's not quite new when these interviews were conducted. It was still old news when these interviews were conducted, but we've seen even more the extremes to which that mindset and that attitude can carry the whole world of people through COVID. I think looking at scientism as a religion, discussing science and technology in light of that, idea is surprising and welcome for its admission and exploration of a truth hidden in plain sight also to as an aside these interviews were conducted when Wired magazine was still young it's been a while since I've subscribed to Wired magazine but Wired magazine for those of you who don't know is a technology and science magazine Jane Metcalf. Being the co-founder of Wired Ventures and the original creator and publisher of Wired Magazine, she's interviewed here. That's pretty special, pretty great. There's also talk in these interviews about globalization increasing, the atomization of the individual, eroding local relationships, in other words. Because we're all online, there's an opportunity cost. Namely, we're not building and developing local relationships. We're not getting to know each other. We're not getting together and spending time together. And even when we do, our attention is divided. It was 25 years ago, and it's even more so today with smartphones in our pockets. And as I've talked in the past 100 episodes and before, with some of these things, especially as you get into persuasive design and looking at what that is and what it means, what the implications are, there's some of this that we really would do well and be much better served to consider as not the things themselves being programmed, but we ourselves being programmed. So an example is given, someone having glowingly boasted that someday church will be all Online, (laughs) it would be interesting to do a follow-up interview post-COVID, like those Pinterest ideas gone horribly wrong. (laughs) You've seen those, I hope, where the Pinterest idea is shown and then the next panel is someone's attempt at it. And then a caption, something like, nailed it. But of course, expectations versus reality are seldom a one-to-one ratio. The question is asked by the gentleman being interviewed, and I would have to go back and listen to it again, but it's very short, so I could, to remember who was being interviewed when this specific recent example in 1997 was brought up. All the way back in 1997, remember, the question was asked, what will come of communion, singing, and fellowship if we aren't together for it? What does it say about us if we see the trade-off of convenience for these meaningful rituals together as a fair trade? Honestly, if I have two criticisms of this collection of interviews, those two criticisms are, for one, that they are too short. And for another thing, they are more thinking out loud to frame the problem than prescribing what we can do about any of it. So maybe you could put this in the category of a chronicle more than a tonic, perhaps. This is not an antidote except... We have to be able to define the problem before we can solve the problem. At a certain point, we have to go on from defining the problem to actually solving the problem. But if you're not convinced that our attitude towards science and technology is broken in this day, this series of interviews would be a great place to start on allowing yourself to be persuaded. There is something broken. Dare I say it, it might upset you. There is something broken about our attitude towards science and technology. What I mean in saying that is obviously, I hope obviously, not that we should forego science and technology, but we need to learn how to think more carefully about things than all or nothing. We need to stop racing to the extreme opposite conclusion as someone comes to us saying, hey, wait a second. What about this, 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 and this? We need to stop reaching for the, well, what do you want to do? Just give it all up? No. Wait, 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 wait. As if the solution to people getting in car accidents would be either A, do nothing about traffic safety, driver's education, smart features in vehicles, or B, Get rid of all of the motor vehicles entirely. You can't have any car accidents if there's no cars. Uh, Right? Am I right? No, that is folly. I'm not going to call it stupid, but that's folly. That's not wise. We can do better. We can do better than that, and we ought to do better than that. And towards the end of doing better than that, you might just check out this series of interviews called Science and Technology, featuring, among others, Neil Postman. Lastly, lastly but not leastly, if that's a word. I don't think it is, actually. Come to think of it. A Journey to the Western Islands of Scotland by Samuel Johnson and James Boswell written firsthand by both men, then compiled together after their traveling in 1773. Who were Samuel Johnson and James Boswell, you may ask? Well, according to Wikipedia, starting with Samuel Johnson, born 18th September, 1709, passed away 13th December, 1784, Often called Dr. Johnson, if you are at all familiar with some of the writing of that period from the generation of the founding fathers. Dr. Johnson, Samuel Johnson, was an English writer who made lasting contributions as a poet, playwright, essayist, moralist, critic, biographer, editor, and lexicographer. According to Wikipedia, he was a devout Anglican and a committed Tory. the Oxford Dictionary of National Biography calls him arguably the most distinguished man of letters in English history James Boswell's Life of Samuel Johnson was selected by Walter Jackson Bate as the most famous single work of biographical art in the whole of literature which is quite high praise if I do say so myself now James Boswell who was he? well Again, according to Wikipedia, ninth Laird of Auchinleck, born 29th October 1740, passed away 19th May 1795. He was a Scottish biographer, diarist, and lawyer, born in Edinburgh. He is best known for his biography of his friend and older contemporary, the English writer Samuel Johnson, which is commonly said to be the greatest biography written in the English language. That sounds like a biography I would like to read, by the way. A great mass of Boswell's diaries, letters, and private papers were recovered from the 1920s to the 1950s, and their ongoing publication by Yale University has transformed his reputation. Well, that's quite something. So these two guys, right? These two guys, the guy who wrote what is said to be the greatest biography written in the English language on the one hand, and also on the other hand, the man who had that biography written about him. Those two guys traveled Scotland in 1773, three years prior to the signing of the Declaration of Independence. They traveled the western islands of Scotland together. And they wrote about it. And this work, A Journey to the Western Islands of Scotland, if you get the copy that I did from audible.com, is quite excellent because it's an interweaving of their two narratives, their two accounts, in a way that is very conversational. And there are different narrators who do the different voices of the two men. So you know who is who back and forth which is great and that doesn't always happen but when it does in this case it's fantastic this is a very very charming and elegantly phrased conversation between two men and the western islands of scotland they're having a conversation with each other they're also having a conversation with the western islands of scotland and insofar as you might read this book or listen to it which is even better i dare say you also are part of that conversation now, it's interesting to me, the character sketches of the people and the places and the country found in this book. For instance, Johnson comments on the migration of Scots to America. And he talks about how in generations past, it was not uncommon for a surplus population because the population can only grow so large the land can only support so many people the population that was surplus would move out of the area and they would go abroad they might go to the continent they might go to france they might travel anywhere really but there was something different according to dr johnson about the migration to america and he comments on how there's this sadness as Whole families who are seen not as superfluous but as essential to the community are going away, and they will never come back. In generations past, yes, some surplus population might have moved away, but it was usually the folks who weren't considered terribly useful. There was no place for them, and so they need to find their fortune somewhere else. And yet now, it's whole families and it's whole communities even. And he comments that that has a very depressing effect on the people of Scotland, that whole communities are disappearing because they're migrating to America. Now, it's interesting to me. I did a little bit of research just to refresh my memory. The Acts of Union, which joined the kingdoms of Scotland and England, they were passed by the parliaments of both those countries in 1707, just 66 years prior to when... Samuel Johnson and James Boswell were traveling the western islands of Scotland and writing about it. Sixty-six years is not terribly long. Just to give you some idea, in case it escapes you at the moment, if they were traveling through Scotland today and the Acts of Union had been passed 66 years ago, today we'd be talking 1956. And I don't know about you, but my father, my father-in-law, they were both born in that decade, not my mother, but my father, my father-in-law, both born in the 1950s. And so it's very conceivable with this short a time having passed since the Acts of Union themselves were passed that the people of Scotland still have it very fresh in their memory, even if just generationally. They've grown up hearing their grandparents talk about the Acts of Union, hearing their parents talk about what their parents' parents had to say about the Acts of Union. And that informs the decision, as they perceive it, between staying in Scotland and migrating to America. According to what I've read, hefty bribes and self-interest among many Scottish parliamentarians drove the legal consent on that side. I think of how the nobles are portrayed in Braveheart. But the common people of Scotland had for centuries, even since Roman times, even since Roman times, for 2,000 years, fought for and demanded independence from England in the South, which was always launching forays into their country and trying to make it subject to the will and whims of the English. The acts of union, plus certainly other related contentions, drove a lot of Scots to emigrate to America. That was true of my MacFarlane ancestors on my paternal grandmother's side, and it was true for a lot of others as well, and arguably had so many Scots not migrated to America between the Acts of Union being passed and 1776, the American Revolution would not have happened, but you had a lot of very discontented Scots, in particular, who made up a disproportionate segment of the Revolutionary Army, and the Scottish Enlightenment played a outsized role in the creation of the United States of America. Not the sole role, the only role, but an outsized role, certainly. So I think reading A Journey to the Western Islands of Scotland by Samuel Johnson and James Boswell is indisputably the best book I read all weekend, and it just so happens to be the oldest as well. And it makes the most sense, ironically, but probably not coincidentally, of the world in which we live, even though what they're really talking about, what they're really writing about, is their travelogue through Scotland. There's a great deal more going on here under the hood, and in a way that is not disdainful. Yes, Samuel Johnson is cantankerous, fussy, critical, but also charming and brilliant and honest. And his biographer, James Boswell, his friend, James Boswell, is earnest and the contrast between the two as they make notes on things, as they recount conversations they've had with one another and the people of Scotland at that time are fantastic and very worth your time, very much worth a listen. I cannot encourage you enough of all the five books that I read over the weekend over Saturday and Sunday, I cannot encourage you enough to check out A Journey to the Western Islands of Scotland by Samuel Johnson and James Boswell. For my part, I see myself going on from this work in contrast to the others, wanting very much to read James Boswell's biography of his friend Samuel Johnson. And if I never read Another Damn Thing by Kevin Williamson, It'll be too soon. If I never hear the name Carlo M. Kipola again, that's all right with me. Roger Scruton's work on beauty was okay. It was good. Not the highlight of my weekend. Science and technology, Neil Postman. I've got a few other works of his, which I've added to my library with a recent Audible sale. But, but, the only truly great book I read over the weekend was a journey to the Western Islands of Scotland. If you read into the Scots and the English and the founding of the United States of America, you will understand so much. You will understand so much of the modern world in which we live, whether you're an American or you're from some other country. Because America has played such an outsized role in world affairs for the past century. Do yourself a favor and read this and understand better the character of the United States of America. I can recommend other books as well, and I do on a regular basis. If you want to get those recommendations, browse My Body of Work and hit subscribe wherever you listen and like to listen to podcast episodes. Also, check out the com and subscribe for email alerts you'll get directly in your email inbox. See what I did there? (laughs) Before I go, one quick thought, because I promised at the top of this episode, I would tell you about my recent job change, the upcoming job change, I should say. I have accepted a formal offer of employment with an engineering firm in Denver. And God willing, we live and do this or that. But it promises to be a beneficial change for my family. And my work is a means to an end for providing for the needs of my household, for providing for the needs of my extended family even. I have to be able to provide for the needs of my immediate household if I am going to be dependable to my extended family, now or in the future. And so I keep my ear to the ground, and an offer was made that was too good to pass up. Therefore, regardless what those who are outside my situation might say about it, about my changing employment again, after a year only, I am changing employment, and I'm going to go and be a controls programmer, and this will be a beneficial move for my family in several key ways, which I don't intend to get to in the details, in the particulars in this episode. But it may be that I will be podcasting less often moving forward. We'll see, at least for a while, and we'll see for how long, God willing, we live and do this or that. But this is a good thing. And even with regards to podcasting, podcasting is a means to an end. My employment is a means to an end. The end for me is to love the Lord my God with all my heart, soul, strength, and mind. And I thank him for providing for us so richly, giving us all that we need in Christ for life and godliness. Secondarily, I love my neighbor as I love myself. And I have no nearer neighbor than my wife and my children. And so therefore, if a better opportunity comes along for me to love my neighbor as I love myself, to love my wife and my children, to love my extended family, I have a duty, I have an obligation to consider that. I have very much loved the people I have worked with the past year. I've very much enjoyed their company, most of them. Not all, all the time, but that could be because I'm cantankerous. It could be because they are sometimes cantankerous. By God's grace, I trust that if my time here is concluded and at an end, the good Lord has accomplished through me what he intended to for the time that I was here. And if it pleases him, he can accomplish through me what he pleases somewhere else for a time. But I'm excited for what the Lord has in store. And I know that he works all things to the good for those who love him and are called according to his purpose. That is a beautiful promise. I intend to set my sights on loving him and being called according to his purpose and trusting in his goodness, trusting in his truth, trusting in the beauty of his love for me and my family, and others. So I don't know if you will get as frequent a podcast experience from me in the days, weeks, months ahead. I don't know. But I hope to continue on podcasting, to continue on talking about everything, wherever I am, whatever I'm doing. But I've got to run at that. As always, thank you for listening. Until next time, God bless. Been listening to the Garrett Ashley Mullet Show on Anchor FM. For more content like what you just heard, subscribe to this podcast on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or Spotify. Also, check out the Garrett Ashley Mullet Show.com to subscribe to email alerts when new episodes are published. As always, you can reach me with any comments, questions, complaints, objections, or insights at Garrett Ashley Mullet at ProtonMail.com.